Hi, I'm Robert McGinnis. I'm the driver of the number nine Palto Network Synchros Racing for Mazda car. And welcome to the Book and the Bird Show. Before we jump into anything else, while we're still on the topic of Robert McGinnis. Wait a minute. We ever got off the topic of Robert McGinnis? Well, we are because he, you know, he does our intro. And this weekend, the reason why we are still on the topic of Robert McGinnis, before we jump into anything else, is this weekend is round 14 of the Pro Mazda, or the Road to Indy, Mazda Road to Indy Pro Mazda series. Yes. Did you finally get that right? Yeah. At Gateway Motorsports Park. Okay. One race. It happened yesterday. So Robert qualified in fourth um, with his teammate Renus VK uh, qualifying in second. Okay. The race ran as well yesterday. Renus won. At this point, I think it's kind of unsurprising. Robert came in right behind him. Well, eight seconds behind him, but second place. Or another one-two. Another one-two for the, the Yunkos team. That's outstanding. Now, has Renus clinched the championship for this because he was way ahead at I, the end of mid-ohio well we've got two more rounds both of them are at portland um but i think he may have I, I don't have the points list in front of me but i think he may have um it does not look like the third driver over at yunko ran carlos cunha um i do not see him in any of the standings for the weekend oh poor carlos uh, but yeah, it looks like Renus uh, is probably gonna walk away with this now. Well, congratulations to Renus, and when he becomes a big time race driver, I we will be able him. to. Well, we had met him, but I will be able to post my selfie of with him from <laughs> his podium win when they did their first one too. And say that, that that you know the VK family. Well, I do know the VK family, and you know nothing is quite cooler than high fives and congratulations with mom and dad yeah. when their son hits the top step of the podium. Yeah, yeah, kind of want to be there when uh, Robert McGinnis hits the top of the podium at some point. <laughs> that would be really, good. really, really cool. So while we're still in the indie car world, now we've got the not great story. So last weekend was uh, the Pocono 500, which Pocono is kind of an oval. Kind of an oval. It, it's kind of an oval because Pocono actually has like three turns, not four. Oh. Just because of the way it works. It's, it's weird. Um, but lap seven of the, uh, the Pocono 500, the race was red. For, actually, it was on lap eight. Seven completed laps on lap eight. The race was red flagged after a fairly serious crash uh, between Ro- Ryan Hunter Ray and uh, Robert Wickens. Okay. So watching the video, Robert was on the outside going into turn three. Um, he just tapped. I mean, it, it was not a significant hit, but just tapped Ryan Hunter Ray's car, which upset robert's car just enough that he actually 
flew into the barrier, went airborne over the barrier, spun um, just he, – he was on top of the barrier, spun around enough that he just barely missed Ryan Hunter Ray's head. Oh, the wow. video is incredible. But threw the car up and into the catch fencing, um, ran through the catch fencing, did some serious damage to the catch fencing. Everybody walked away, but Ryan Hunt, or not Ryan, but uh, Robert Wickens was conscious but flown out from the track. Um, at the time, it was reported that while, yes, he was awake and alert, um, he had a broken arm and what they were describing as orthopedic injuries to both legs. Uh-oh. We've confirmed now that, that he broke both legs, and on Tuesday— um, he was, uh, well, the statement that was released by IndyCar, and I'll, I'll just read theirs. It's better than me trying to retell it here. Schmidt-Peterson Motorsports driver Robert Wickens underwent surgery Monday, August 20th at Lehigh Valley Hospital, Cedar Crest, to stabilize a thoracic spinal fracture associated with a spinal cord injury sustained during the IndyCar event at Pocono Raceway on Sunday, August 19th. Titanium rods and screws were placed successfully in Wiccan's spine during the surgery, which was performed without complication. The severity of the spinal cord injury is indeterminate at this time. Wiccan's is expected to undergo further surgeries to treat fractures in his lower extremities and right forearm. He remains in stable condition. Wow. Now, at this point, we have no other updates regarding Robert's condition. Um... But, yeah, other than, than being described as in stable condition. Um, so what this means for his racing future in general, no word either on that as well. Wow, that's rough. Um, I think two things that I could add to this piece is, one, obviously, Bloke and the Birds' thoughts and prayers are with Robert um, and wishing him a speedy recovery and hopefully not extensive damage and we know that there have been drivers that have come back from serious crashes um and raced again and so we have ever hope for that the other thing is your description of what happened in the gentle tap of ryan hunter ray's car should really expose how truly dangerous that oval concept is and i know it's a an odd oval at pocono but anyway those their cars are set up in such a way that they only do one thing and those little taps have amazing downstream results i mean we've watched cars fly at a lot of different ovals well a couple of other things to go with this and, and actually racefans.net has a much better explanation and some pictures of what happened and why um but I guess the impact, a lot of the force of the impact was absorbed by the safer barrier around the wall, which was good, but because of the angle that was going on, it swept along the top, swept along the rows of the chain link fence, um, and then there was another impact as it was sliding along there, which caused an abrupt deceleration and then sent the car spinning. One of the things of note here is that a couple of years ago in Las Vegas, Dan Weldon was killed in an almost identical crash. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the the, the big difference, though, and, and 
why Robert Wickens walked away, well, he didn't walk away, he survived this incident as opposed to Dan Weldon who died in it, is that when Weldon went up on there and his car was going through the catch fence, one of the support posts for the catch fence hit him. Mm. Robert didn't get hit by any of the, and, and as a result of it on the NBC Sports broadcast, one of the commentators actually in just the raw emotion of the moment said, we've got to come up with a better answer for these catch fences because these catch fences, while yes, they protect the fans and, and there is some protection that is afforded to the drivers, those posts are a major, major risk to those drivers if they end up in the catch fence. Mm. Then you add up on top of it that a couple inches lower and Ryan Hunter Ray wouldn't be here either. Right. Because, again, much like in, in Formula One, there's no head protection. There's nothing to keep that car from coming, come, or debris in general, from hitting their drivers. Now, IndyCar has looked at um, a windscreen, which it looks like they have not really had great results with it either. I don't know if the halo is the right option. And I was struck this weekend watching the end of Spa, the, the qualifying there, and how much difficulty Lewis had getting out of the car with that halo in there. Okay, so you were struck by that too. Mm -hmm. Because I was watching that at the very end of qualifying. And, you know, at first I thought, well, you know, it's just Lewis, you know, taking his moment because he's so into taking his moments. And then I just watched the contortion act that that boy had to do to get out of the car and I'm looking at it going how do you do that in the required like second or something I mean they've got a requirement of how fast they can yeah. get out of that car I'm like because it didn't seem like and I know he wasn't under any pressure to pop out but it seemed really difficult yeah and and admittedly you know Lewis was probably taking his time to get out but we we've seen him struggle around not to the extent that we saw this weekend or at least on on saturday but we've seen him struggle to get out of that car before but this it just seemed more than usual and yeah. i don't know what was going on there but that should be a concern as well is ease of entry and exit out of the car around these safety structures exactly so i don't i don't know what the right answer is um, I'm not completely sure that we will actually, I, I really don't believe that we're going to see these safety fences go away. Um, there, there's been enough significant crashes with cars being and wheels and other stuff being launched into crowds that I can't imagine that any series is going to go. Yeah, we're just going to do away with those. No, but it, we don't have to do the same kind of fence. There could be somebody exploring an opportunity for a different kind of fencing that would protect the fans, but also not create a risk of the posts and other things. I mean, you've got to have some support structure. How do you do that without uh, causing risk to the drivers? And I mean, at the end of the day, we have to take we cannot eliminate all risk. Mm -hmm. I mean, otherwise we're going to put them in bumper cars and slow them down really, really slow and call that a race. And nobody's going to appreciate that. So yeah. you're not going to eliminate all risk, but can we mitigate risk? Can we lessen the severity of what will happen if they meet that particular obstacle? Um, because the ultimate goal, and this is, this is something I really just agree with, um, uh, Stuart on so much is 
it's not about eliminating risk. It's about eliminating death. Yeah. You know, this is always going to be a risky sport. We like it because it's a risky sport. We like the fact that there is an element of danger and danger that I'm personally not willing to put myself in. So I'm willing to watch somebody else do that. That's part of the entertainment value. Well, it, it's the risk is part of what makes it exciting. Mm-hmm. But there's a difference. But it's between, safe because you it, know they're not going to die. It, yeah, it, it's a different kind of risk. You know, gamble and yeah, you end up in a wreck. But if it's a wreck that walks away, is one thing from gamble and you lose your life. Right. And I mean, we're very, very thankful that as of right now, the majority of times that people go out on track, they're, they're, we're not saying goodbye to somebody. And there was a period of time when we were losing a race driver every weekend. Pretty close to it. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that we've done incredible steps forward and I think that we just can never stop improving. So... Let's move we'll, – we'll keep an eye on what's going on with Robert, and as we get updates, we'll, we'll share them as we can. Um, but let's move over to Formula One. And, yes, Formula One is back. Back with it's a vengeance. Talk about the drama that went on this weekend. Oh. But before we jump into the drama of this weekend, we got to talk about Monza. Now, on the plus side, Monza's in a couple of weeks – um, but Monza's contract only runs through 2019. They want to keep, they want to stay beyond 2019. If I remember, it's either 2020 or 2021 is their 100th anniversary. Right. It's kind of important to them to be able to keep Formula One on the calendar. Um, unfortunately, for this year's race, there was a decline in ticket sales. Uh-oh. Um, then you add on top of that the fact that they've been losing money pretty regularly pretty consistently they're now expressing some concern as to whether or not they will be able to come to a agreement for future races so angelo stitchy damiani who's the president of automobile club d'italia who runs the track he says um closed last re- last year's race with a strong loss and with the 2018 budget will not be different either it is clear that such a situation is not sustainable in the long term. The ACI is ready to do its part, but not under any conditions. Chase Carey has told me that an F1 without Monza is unthinkable, and in four, year, four years, okay, so 2022, four years, it will celebrate its centenary. We agree on that, but we must also deal in facts. Um, and what's baffling here, you think about what's going on with the title race. Mm-hmm. And amazingly, what's going on with the title race, Germany, who has struggled for so many years for the first year in a while, so a significant uptick in ticket sales, Monza and Italy in general being so infatuated with Ferrari. Why are they struggling to sell tickets this year? I think that somebody's got to ask that question. And there is a giant black hole of things we don't know. Mm-hmm. What do their ticket packages look like? What are they trying to get out of the fans? Are they are they dealing with the legacy of some burning extortion payments, which I think yeah. they are. And that's and, the, the we're not willing to do this at any cost. Right. And, you know, are they being forced by a bad deal to jack up the prices and then there's that's no longer reasonable 
with the other and the fluidity of travel around Europe, while you might have Ferrari fans that want to go see Ferrari in Monza, which is awesome, have they looked at another venue that is reasonably reasonable price and reasonable distance and a lower price? Um, are these fans that traditionally would have gone to one or two races now only choosing to go to one because of economic issues that are going on in Italy? I mean, there are a lot of you know. questions, and maybe, maybe, just maybe, they didn't embrace what Silverstone did, which was to lower the family price. Um, I, you know, I don't know. Now, what I do know is that, to your point, within about four hours of, um, of Monza— You've got Monte Carlo. Now, I would expect that the average fan that goes to, to Monza is probably not going to Monte Carlo. Um, in terms of competitive pressure, Imola has expressed interest in hosting a race. Imola's probably about four hours south. Um, there's been testing and stuff held at Mugello, which is about three and a half to four hours away. Mm-hmm. Um, there is other racing within driving distance i want to say barcelona is probably between six to eight hours away by car from monza there is other racing that's accessible heck even the french grand prix i think is closer than than barcelona to monza and so it's just it's it's what is available. Okay, if the French Grand Prix is closer, you know, think about that. Mm-hmm. If your fan says, "I'm gonna buy, I'm gonna go to one race this year," and I've gone to Monza for the past three years, and the French Grand Prix is a little bit further away, but it's the first year it's run in in ten years. Yeah. Wouldn't Wouldn't you think that maybe while well, I want to go over there, and so now I've spent my dollars someplace else. You know, it, it's all of those factors. And there's giant factors, just marketing factors that I don't know the answer to. But I think, and we've heard this repeatedly, I think one of the things that Liberty um, Media has to do is really assess these deals and get their own skin in the game of getting the promotion piece, having a part of the promotion piece of each of these different tracks instead of the here's the extortion payment and wash my hands and walk away plan of the Eccleston years. I think it's incumbent on Liberty to help promote and help sustain these tracks. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree fully. It's, it's something that we've said for years, even back during the Bernie Eccleston days and that, the, the promotion of Formula One, Formula One shouldn't be, okay, we've brought Formula One to your town. Go figure it out. Right. And that's, in many ways, that's the impression that we have had about how Bernie Eccleston used to do it. And he used to rely more on what he could get from the tracks in terms of payments than in boosting the ticket sales and boosting all the other stuff that's needed to just make a healthy ecosystem there. Mm-hmm. So, potential changes coming. Changes. Um, we've heard a lot of talk about budget caps and making changes to the rules to benefit the smaller players and the folks who don't have dump trucks full of money that they can just pour into their team. So, Ross Braun says, and he says that the teams look to be 
will look to be amenable to this. I don't know if it's been, been fully formalized, um, but they are looking to do a, what he's calling a soft budget cap for 2019 and 2020 with an actual implementation, a regulatory cap put in place for 2021. Um, so what they're talking is setting a, a target spend for each of the teams at $150 million. Okay. Now, he admits that initially this probably won't be achievable for all, for all the teams, but it should reduce the differential differential between the teams that are at that limit and those that aren't. So it is the if you can hit that if you can stay within that that cap and those budget constraints, great. If you can't, now's the time for you to start figuring out how to do the necessary drawdown to your spend, to your staff, to all of those various bits to bring yourself in line by 2021. So this is the, for Cyndia, this is the, the Williams. For them, they're all set. But if you're the Mercedes, a Ferrari, a Red Bull, this is the start figuring out now how you're going to get down to that and get yourself in compliance. I gotta tell you, I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah, I, I get it and I don't get it. I mean, it's the best way to put it is I, I get that they've got to figure out some need to do it. I don't know how they're ever going to figure out how to enforce it. Um, I, I don't know really how in line this is with what we view Formula One should be. Mm -hmm. Budget caps fly in the face of my rant from last week. Um, about the way I think the rule set should be put together for Formula One. And I get that that creates an unfair playing field. Yeah. I get that. By its very nature, I get that. I don't know how to solve for it, honestly. But one of the things that would really help is a fair payout of prize money. So... On the other side of that is, instead of just purely looking at budget caps on the teams, consider a pay, the payout structure to become more fair. So yes, in the short term, your big teams that can spend more are going to make more money in the mm -hmm. prize money because they'll still be at the top. But if Williams... When they had finished, remember back when they finished fourth, they got a, a, a nice chunk of change. If they had gotten the right amount of chunk of change for their fourth place win, and I get they get a heritage payment and they get mm -hmm. a few other things. But if they'd gotten the right payment for that, how much would that have affected their future years? Maybe their budget could have been $200 million instead of $150 million. Well, there, there's the other question of exactly how the mechanism of this works because is that 150 million that you can raise and spend and bring in for this excluding prize fund payouts mm -hmm. excluding some of these uh, you know your heritage payouts and, and and your mercedes one force go stick at bernie payout <laughs> um you know do the would those count against that budget cap and I don't know. I, again, the, the, the structure that to me makes the most sense around the payouts in general is that 
one, you look at the overall revenue distribution. And you look at something very similar to, you know, Major League Baseball. You, you turn around and you say, okay, if you are a team, if you are fielding a team in Formula One, you will get X amount of money, period, the year, regardless of what your performance is. You start, and, and, and maybe that money comes from, say, the broadcast revenues, which is, I think, the, the most likely place for it. Let that money come from the broadcast revenues. That fields a default payment for the teams for whatever that amount, amount is. And that could be a floating amount based on what the broadcast revenues per year are. And number of teams competing. And Yeah, and, and number of teams competing because it's divided up against them. Then you turn around again because you still need to reward success and you should reward success. Right. That's where you turn around and you go, okay, there's a prize fund payout that your percentage of that prize fund is dependent on where you sit in the Constructors' Championship. And again, everybody gets some, but some get more, and they get more because they did better. Right. And that's deserving, and that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. As opposed to the, well, you haven't been in for two years, too bad, so sad, you get nothing. Well, you know, you were... 10th in, in a series or 11th in a series, too bad, so sad, you get nothing. Or your name is Ferrari, you can be anywhere in the series and you're still going to get a bigger prize fund payout than anybody else, including the winner of the series. Yeah, that too. I mean, I'm sorry, I don't like the prize fund payout is 50% goes to Ferrari and then everybody else deals with the scraps. And that's part of what I, I think is if we came up with a fair system of payout, how would that affect what the budgets look like? If the teams could count on a specific amount of money that we know is coming in, does that mm-hmm. does that raise the water over at a Sauber or a Force India or a, a Williams? I think if nothing else, it changes some of their math and some of their calculation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that should be independent of the other deals that are in place around um, standardized parts supplying that McLaren does, that Williams does, and things of that nature. Yeah. So the other change that is being considered for 2021, you know, we've talked so much about how they want to revamp the engines, revamp what they're doing to make them cheaper, make them less complex, <clears throat> attract new entries. Well, now Ross Braun is saying, yeah, we might not do that. <clears throat> what they're realizing is, you know, hey, the constructors, the existing constructors really don't want to do this. Right. They're fighting us really hard. They're very unified in it. But what they've discovered is that while, yes, they've seen interest from Porsche and Aston Martin and Cosworth, because they haven't come up with specific rules, because the, the existing teams are fighting them, they're seeing less interest from those new teams. Right. So since the whole goal of this was to attract new engine manufacturers, and the new engine manufacturers don't seem to be interested in coming in because they have come up to an agreement on the rules, well, maybe we'll just blow this off a little. <laughs> <clears throat> so they're now considering... Pushing, he's not saying that they're not going to do it, but maybe they won't target 2021. Maybe this would come later. We don't know how much later just yet, but maybe it would come later. Later is a very good time frame. Yeah. And no surprise, the teams were okay with this. Because mm-hmm. they didn't win yeah. in the first place. 
So we'll, we'll see what happens, but right now it's not looking like we're going to see an engine change. Or an engine, an additional an, an engine. An engine spec change, I should say. Okay. <clears throat> so then let's get to Force India. Oh, Force India. I, I heard them briefly called Stroll's team on the BBC, on the uh, Channel 4 coverage. Yeah. Stroll racing or something crazy like that. But well, I think they've all agreed that for now they're still calling them Force India, even though they've had to remove all the Force India logoing stuff. Well, the official name that was announced by the team and the official entry is the team is called Race Point Force India. Now, they showed up, <clears throat> and I was fully expecting to have to spend a lot, lot more time on this situation because the situation was absolutely insane around oh tuesday to thursday and actually even on friday i think we were still quite a bit up in the air as to what was going on with the team and whether or not they were even going to be allowed to put a car on the grid for friday practices wow so the equipment showed up the motorhome showed up at spot on schedule all of the Force India branding was removed from everything. The colors were, it was still the pink and white color scheme. But all the Force India branding was gone. The deal did not officially close when, the, so, so we had the announcement that an agreement was in place for Lawrence Stroll to, and his consortium to take over the team. The deal was not finalized prior to the team's arrival in Spa. As part of this, and the fact that it was only an agreement and not a closed financial transaction, Euralchem and Dimitri Mazepan, um, who is the father of GP3 racer and Formula E test driver Nikita Mazepan, they're a chemical firm, they were interested in buying the team as well and had put forth an offer that was turned down by the administrators. Dimitri was really, really upset. Uh-oh. Halley was completely upset. Um, they were fighting the agreement. They did not think that the agreement was, was um, properly carried out. They pointed out the fact that they did not get the – that the stroll agreement had not been approved by the 20-some-odd Indian bankers who have a say in this. Not everybody had signed off on it, and it was being uh, approached as a done deal, and nothing had closed. Mm. So he was pushing to take action to uh, force some hands in this. One from the perspective of, we've got a deal. He seemed to think that the Indian bankers were going to approve the deal. Um, He didn't feel that it was agreed, the stroll deal was properly agreed to and there were other drama around that and was trying to fight the whole thing ultimately what ended up happening was the stroll deal actually was accepted as closed on thursday and the team put out a formal announcement saying that they are now race point force india that triggered the next round of agreements around the FIA around whether or not they were going to be allowed to race and how that whole thing was going to play out. Yes. So what we know, and we don't know all of it, what we know is that 
the entry was approved and the entry was approved for race point force india which we are like everybody else going to just call force india for simplicity's sake for the new force india to be granted an entry into the rest of the formula one season as a new entity okay what that means is that they have forfeited all of the points that were earned by sahara force india in the preceding races Correct. race point force india starts off at zero the teams have unanimously agreed to award race point force india the prize money that was earned from the 2017 season actually i don't know if to award them but to allow them to keep the prize money that sahara force india earned for the 17 season that had to be done unanimously. None of the teams blocked that. They also, none of the teams blocked the granting of the race entry for the remaining season. They have not yet agreed as to what will happen to the prize money for the 2018 season. Right. Now, from my understanding, the reason that in part of the deals that got cut was McLaren was blocking them just like taking over the rest of the season for because I think originally the proposal had been they would continue forward with Sahara Force India's points and everything as if nothing really happened as if just ownership of the team had changed but it wasn't a new team right. and McLaren stepped in and, and blocked that and that's what caused them to have to go back down to a zero point thing that was a that was a McLaren holdout yeah um so i think there was probably compromises in the mclaren holdout for money and other things along the way so that piece has happened on the leadership side bob fernley is out mm -hmm. otmar safnauer um continues in his role as chief operating officer and he is now running the team officially right okay um in terms of engines gearboxes and that piece of the puzzle yes they're a new team yes the points were forfeit however there is agreement that they remain on the engine count and the gearbox count for the the season that were run by the old team so the count doesn't start over they don't get three new engines and three new gearboxes right it's confusing yeah it's like <laughs> they're a hybrid you're an old team but you're a new team depending on what serves us best and they also lost their seat on the strategy that, that was my next thing so force in sahara force india earned a spot on the strategy group because they've been in fourth for the last couple of years and they're not williams mercedes red bull um, or ferrari <laughs> so they had earned a seat on the strategy group because they were best of the rest well and and the team has agreed Admar safnauer has agreed that as a new entry into formula one now race point force india will not have a seat on the strategy group at least for now if they earn enough points and, and i don't know i don't think they will if they earn enough points they could get back on for the 19th season but i don't see that happening 
that's a lot of points to get in the back half of the season. Right. Without being able to actually win a race. I mean, keep that part in mind. Right. Now, one of the first things I saw on Sky's coverage this morning in their pre-race coverage Mm -hmm. was the instant question of, will the new Force India make, because um, in qualifying yesterday, Ocon and Perez are third and fourth. Mm Mm-hmm. And so then the, now the current bet is, will in one race, uh, Race Point Force India make more points to take over Williams' last, you know, move up and push Williams back down to last place again? Amazingly, that's entirely possible. That's the thing, is that's entirely possible, is if they could finish the way they are sitting in the race today, they will come away with a huge points haul. Mm-hmm. For a brand-new, not-so-brand-new team. Well, the thing is, just even if they continue at the at the level that they have been at, without looking at the qualifying that happened today, if they continue in at the level that they've been at, running strongly in the mid-pack, even for half the season, they're not going to end up in last place. Right. Now, whether or not at this point... Um, given that Sauber has actually had a fairly decent season, whether or not they could overtake Sauber or McLaren, that I think is, especially McLaren, because uh, Fernando has done a very good job of keeping them, yes, they're at the back of the points, but keeping them in the points. If they could overhaul McLaren by the end of the season because of the fact that they've been doing a lot of double points finishes and a lot of double points finishes in that 5th, 6th, 7th, range they could conceivably overhaul mclaren in half a season i think the word you're looking for is overtake is it they're used interchangeably in this person in this okay but yes overtake would work as well are you done with the nitpicky i'm just (laughs) saying overhaul typically means to remake and they wouldn't remake mclaren they would overtake mclaren Surpass, supersede, yeah. beat, smackdown. Which now also begs the question of what's going to happen with drivers. So since the 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 overall assumption, and 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 I think it's unfortunately a, a fairly strong and valid assumption, is that since Lance Stroll's dad bought him a Formula One team for his birthday. Lance Stroll is getting a seat. And Esteban Ocon has pretty much confirmed that he's expecting to lose his seat to Lance. Yep. Which, by the way, if, if you're Lance or if you're Esteban Ocon, you got to be pretty dang pissed off about this. And what's even worse for Esteban Ocon is in his career, this is like the second time that he's had very strong performances and as a result is looking at not having a seat for the next year. That part's really, really rough. But the other part of this is how short-sighted is that for Race Point Force India? Because you're going to put a lesser driver. Now, I get his daddy Stroll's son, Mm -hmm. but he's definitely a lesser driver in that seat. But that's the whole reason Lance is in Formula One to begin with. He was never brought, and I'm sorry, no matter what you think about Lance Stroll, he was never brought into Formula One on merit. He was brought in over the fact that Lawrence had dump trucks full of money that he poured into Williams at a time of need, 
and was willing to turn around and rent out tracks and pay for the running of legacy Williams cars so that Lance could get experience in a Formula One car that he does not have. Right. I understand all of that, but I just think, you know, you're looking at a team that's brand new-ish and has great potential and has had a great run, and you're going to turn around and put half their driver lineup is always on the back foot. Well, that's where the next question comes in, because Lawrence, we know, is very amenable to a tighter part, whichever team he's involved with, because he tried to do this with Williams, and Williams fought him and told him not just no, but hell no. He wants a B team to Mercedes or to another team. He feels that that is a way for a junior team to gain success in the sport. Toto Wolf has admitted this weekend that they are now considering such a partnership with Force India. Could some of that consideration also include the, if you do this, you accept at least one of those seats, we put a driver in there. And knowing that Toto Wolf is looking after Esteban Ocon's career, could that prevent a stroll move? I don't, I don't know. And we won't know until this all happens. Yeah. But, but that's the, the only thing that I've got rolling around is if Mercedes goes to Force India and says, sure, you want to do this, we're supporting Esteban Ocon, we think he deserves a strong race seat, this is where we want to have him, and we want to continue to grow him as a potential future driver for Mercedes. We don't think Lance is that driver. You want cheap engines. You want the technical collaboration. This is what you need to do to get it. Yeah. Well, and that's the question of then you have to look at the other seat. So mm-hmm. if Mercedes was able to pull a force to keep Ocon in that seat, then you're looking at a Perez seat that – you know, does he have a seat? Is he signed? You know, what all of that does that look like? Well, according to Sergio Perez this weekend, Sergio says that his deal for 19 is signed. He says there's no official announcement. He's hoping to have that done by 19, but he knows where he is going for 19 and he is comfortable. Oh, wait. He says he knows where he's going. He doesn't say he's going to Force India. He doesn't. Um, But he does say what he said was that now that the team is stable, he knows where he's going and what's happening. Okay. So, yes, infer what you want there. It's possible that, yes, now that the team is stable, he's packing his bags and going to Sauber. I think it's unlikely. Yeah. But, yeah, that's what we know. In terms of other seats that are now bouncing around. Let's first start really low with Haas. And what the what is happening with Santino Ferrucci? Well, he's still part of their junior program. Despite being banned from F2, despite being fired from his team because they were not paying, Gunther Steiner says, I think we will keep him for the time being on the program. We will see what he is going to do in IndyCar and stay with that one. The guy is trying to make a career, and in the end, we don't want to pull the rug under his feet. 
I don't understand know. that one. I, I, yeah, I mean, I got it, nothing. It, it, it's one thing if we were talking to, you know, oh, he made a mistake. He had a bad run of of some crappy starts, and you know, he was leading it, and all of a sudden, he, you know. The next five races, he got into wrecks that weren't his fault. I could see the, we don't want to pull the rug out from under his feet. But blatant rules violations and being accused of crash, deliberately crashing into your teammate because you were pissed at him, I don't know about that. I don't know. It's it's the form, It's the Formula One way. We've heard many a story of people crashing into people because they were pissed at them. Yeah. But overall... There may be some uncertainty as to where people are going within all the Ferrari power teams. Why all the Ferrari power teams? Well, domino number one is unsurprisingly Kimi Raikkonen, who we thought was out the door, who we thought was being told to get out of the way. Well, like we mentioned before, there were rumblings that with the passing of Sergio Marchionne, maybe he's not quite out the door. Then you add up on top of it the fact that, yes, his, the beginning of his season was kind of crummy, but the last couple of races, he's kind of found some form again. So now there is talk that a contract may be on offering for Kimmy, which then leads a knockdown effect further in the Ferrari structure as to folks moving around and who's going to go where and how and when and all of that stuff. True. So... On the topic of Haas, it's believed that Kevin Magnuson has done more than enough to retain his seat for at least another year. Oh, he should have. He was the only one that was carrying points for the first six races. Yeah. Um, However, Roman Grosjean, who early, well, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, we were told that, yes, despite the poor turn of form, that he was experiencing, that his seat was safe. Now it sounds like his seat may not be quite so safe. So we open up a space on Haas. The talk is that maybe if, well, not maybe, if Ferrari elects to keep Kimi, that Charles Leclerc gets moved from um, Alpha Salber, Alphab, 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 over to Alferb. 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 Okay. Over to Haas to team up with Kevin Magnuson, who Haas originally had, was open to taking, well, they'd considered Charles Leclerc, but they were concerned about a rookie driver. Well, now he's not a rookie driver, so now they're a little more open to that, and he's shown good form and good performance. And that would be a, I think in, in a way, that's a more proper step up for Leclerc. Because to go from arguably the backmarker of Sauber, who, quite frankly, they've done very well this year. You cannot mm-hmm. argue that Sauber has picked up points where they can. They're doing better than they've done in the past few years. But Sauber, you know, they didn't just, they're not competing for best of the rest. They're really competing for less worse than McLaren. Um, and Williams. And Williams. So... When you've got that going on, I would really love to see Leclerc put in at least another season in a true mid-marker team, which that step to Haas, I would be in favor of if I was in charge of those things, as opposed to dumping him from tiny team to Ferrari. (laughs) Um, I mean, I think about the disservice that that happened to Kevin Magnuson 
when he went to McLaren for the year. Um, and even though McLaren wasn't fighting at the top at the time, I think it was a disservice for him not to have put a little bit more time in a junior team. Yeah, but McLaren's done that before. I mean, really, McLaren was looking for the next Lewis Hamilton. Right. And briefly thought they had it in Kevin Magnuson with, you know, a podium in his first race. Then we realized that the car was just still not there. Right. Seems to be an ongoing trend since 2013 with him. Yeah. But anyway, back to this whole group. There, There's other questions and, and things. Okay, so... If you if Charles Leclerc moves to Haas, that frees up at least one seat over at, at Alfarb for possibly the other Ferrari junior who has been nipping at the heels of Formula One, Antonio Giovinazzi, mm-hmm. who has had a fill-in role a couple of times already. He's, he's driven a couple of races. So possibly Giovinazzi could move over to Sauber especially with this idea that Haas really doesn't want a rookie. Giovinazzi really isn't suited to move over there. Correct. But we still have the question of the final seat over at Sauber and Marcus Erickson. Yeah, what would happen to Erickson? Well, that's where it gets really kind of muddy because one of Sauber's key investors is Hans Rousing, who is Marcus Erickson's backer. He is very interested in keeping Marcus in the series ah. but how much money he's got in and whether or not he's got sway in drivers that's kind of up in the air um they could potentially turn away from marcus erickson for whatever reason then grosjean could come into play which um i think would not be a good sign for, for roman as it would just slide him further down the grid but the other one that has been pointed out there as a possible candidate to take the seat would be Stoffel Van Dorn, especially since Stoffel's future is in question over at McLaren. It turns out that team principal over at Sauber, Frederick Vesseur, is familiar with Stoffel. Um, he worked with Stoffel when uh, um, Stoffel was driving for Vesseur's art team in 2015 and that's when he won the gp2 title oh so maybe the flying waffle will go to alferb that's possible too the other piece to go along with that is that stoffel's manager alessandro aluni bravi is linked to the sauber ownership structure in some manner so that there's some other connection there that could possibly see him moving in that direction oh what a tangled web we weave yeah Now, okay, so let's just pretend for a second. We move these little dominoes around. Mm -hmm. We put Leclerc at Haas, booting Roman out of a seat. Mm -hmm. We take Stoffel out of a seat at McLaren. I'm assuming Lando Norris would probably come over for that open seat. That seems most likely. That would be my guess, would be Lando Norris, although there is another junior that is also a potential at McLaren who's been hopeful now at alfarb you've got the possibility of a new to the grid which is not a bad place for people to be new to the grid is starting down at sauber giovinazzi but erickson's been on the grid for a couple of years now he's doing quite 
he's doing what he can where he's, he is. He's doing acceptable for the team that he's at. But the thing is, and nobody is saying out. that Marcus Erickson is a future race winner, is a future world champion. Yeah. Um, not like they the, are for Leclerc. Yeah, there, there's no interest from the big teams to take Marcus on. So in many ways, much like Lance Stroll, he's probably peaked in terms of where he can go in the series. Which is sad because he's won me a lot of points in the Fantasy GP series. Unless... He goes to Williams. Well, no, I I was kind of wondering if maybe Marcus's dad could buy him a Formula One team. I don't think Marcus's dad is as rich as Daddy Stroll. I don't know how rich Marcus's dad is, <laughs> but I don't think that he's as rich as Daddy Stroll. Now, one of the two big dominoes that have set the driver's market rolling this year was Daniel Ricciardo mm-hmm. and his shock decision to make the move from Red Bull over to Renault. Okay, can we just say this one time? Because every pundit in the world out there that talks about Formula One has one of two directions that they're talking about his his shock decision. Mm-hmm. And truthfully, we are only going to know next year when he comes off the line in a Renault as to what ha- what his whether this was the brilliance of Lewis Hamilton or the stupidity of Fernando Alonso. one or the other but that is all people are talking about is you know it's all about timing on these things and lewis timed it perfectly to go to mercedes at just the right time so the question is does ricardo know something that makes this the right time or is he playing the emotional game that Fernando makes his decisions by and almost always comes up short? I think some of it's emotional and some of it is because from what he has seen so far from the Honda engines, Daniel doesn't believe that this is a race-winning drive. I can understand that. Um, I think the Max thing does have something to do with it. How much it has to do with it, I don't know. Um, But, you know, from what I've heard from Mark Webber and his time there with Sebastian Vettel, it would not surprise me if there is some frustration going on around um, the team lining up around a driver and starting to not favor them both equally. Mm. Um, And and I could see that bothering him a lot. Yeah. Yeah. But the decision came as a surprise, not just to us, but, again, even to the Red Bull folks. Um, Helmut Marco was speaking to uh, Austrian broadcaster Service TV about the decision and what happened. Um, he said, I don't understand it. It was a very sit- strange situation anyhow. The negotiations were difficult, but Wednesday before the Austrian Grand Prix, we were talking for two hours and came to an agreement. During the weekend, we were talking and renegotiating again. In Hungary, we told Mr. Matischitz and me, or in Hungary, he told Mr. Matischitz and me that he was okay with everything and that he was going to sign during the post-Hungarian GP test on Tuesday, but he didn't. On Thursday, he then called and told me he was going to Renault. I can only assume that he doesn't believe in the Honda project or that Renault offered him a lot of money. 
I'm going to bet both. That was my thought. That was my thought. Because I don't think Ricardo is not pragmatic enough to say, well, you're going to give me boatloads of money if I do this. Yeah. Well, somebody else who's been talking about the driver situation would be a former teammate of Daniel's. So back in Daniel's Toro Rosso days, he was paired up with Jean-Eric Verne. Jean-Eric Verne was passed over, even though I think he had more time in a team, he was passed over for Daniel to get the promotion up to um, Red Bull when Mark Webber retired. As a result, Jean-Eric Verne stayed, I think, one year and then packed his bags and went to Formula E, where he won the championship in Formula E. Well, Jean-Eric says that he's been approached by a team in Formula One for 2019. He says it has not been Red Bull, but he is um, excited over the prospect that he was approached by a team because he kind of figured that his Formula One career was done with. Interesting. Yeah. So I don't know who is talking to him, but he says he's talked to a team, but it's not Red Bull. Which is interesting because apparently Red Bull keeps talking to Fernando. Well, in theory... They were talking to Fernando, at least if you keep listening to Fernando Alonso, what they actually decided to do to to, um, fill Daniel's coming vacant seat was unsurprisingly promoted Pierre Gasly. Do you think Gasly's upset that he was the second choice after Fernando Alonso? (laughs) (laughs) No, not in the slightest. Okay, just double check it. Um... Yeah, I'm not sure Pierre's quite ready for it. I think it's going to be kind of bumpy. And, and I think the real question is going to be, is this going to be more of a Daniel Ricardo type of a move up to the big team, or is it going to be more of a Daniel Kvyat type move to the big team? Because I don't expect this to be a Max Kvyat, or, or a, a Max Verstappen type. I think that we're going to see Max look really good for several races next year. Yeah, that, that's kind of my thought, too. Um, but oddly enough, so he's moving up as the junior driver to Max on the Red Bull team. But he's older. He's older than Max. Pierre Gasly's 22 and Max is 19. I realize that I'm old as dirt. I mean, I get that. But these drivers keep seeing me get younger and younger and younger. I mean... We were listening to an interview yesterday or early this morning, and one of the drivers is like, yeah, it's my fifth year in Formula One, and I'm 24. Yeah. I'm like, so you have years ahead of you. If you think about um, Raikkonen is 41. Mm -hmm. I believe that was Daniel Ricciardo. Is he only 24? I thought he was in his late 20s now. But it might have been Daniel Ricardo. But it was just like my fifth year in Formula One. And I'm like, okay, five years into Formula One, you are experienced. You are an elder statesman. You've been around for a while. The expectation is that you're doing something. But you're not even halfway through your 20s. Yeah. But, okay, so okay, staying I'm, on topic here. Sorry. I was feeling old for a minute. Yeah. The natural thought would have been and, and and we talked about this last week was Carlos Sainz shifting over if Daniel had walked 
but somebody reminded me of something this past week and why probably Red Bull decided that they were going to let Carlos go at this point. What? So Carlos and Max were paired together at Toro Rosso. Correct. And that it was did, not pretty. That didn't go very well. So the thought is, from a drama perspective, possibly they did not want to have to manage that. I can't imagine why they would not have wanted to manage that set of drama. Yeah. Because those two did not get along at all. And I think Christian prefers a little harmony in his garages. Yeah. So that brings us to Fernando Alonso and his comments this week. (laughs) Yes. Which, to be quite honest with you, it, it was getting to a point where I really had to wonder about Fernando. Okay, so for starters, he, he admitted, and, the team, and Red Bull acknowledged that back in 2007, the team had approached Fernando about joining them. Okay. And to me, that made sense. 2007, it was before they'd really spun up the young driver program. They were, they were looking for experienced drivers because they were fre- relatively new and fresh on the grid. Um, so that kind of makes sense. And instead, Fernando said that, you know, he was looking for what appeared to be the safe choice at the time, not knowing that Red Bull was on the cusp of four straight years of, of wins and championships. And that was why he made the decision to go to Ferrari. And he had that a makes sense. He had an interesting point. I listened to that interview that he had when he was explaining that whole thing. And You know, we've teased that Fernando has the worst decision-making power ever. Mm -hmm. But if you honestly think about it, if you were that in that position, you were a two-time world champion, you had done well, and now you were offered the opportunity to drive the little red car, Mm -hmm. which is the goal. I mean, seriously, Lewis would take the Ferrari. (laughs) I mean, you'd have to think about it. As Mark Weber would say, they have really nice company cars. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, in hindsight, you can see that Fernando made a, a wrong choice. But if you put yourself right before that position, when that started happening, mm-hmm. and say this is the time period that Fernando was trying to make this this choice, his choice was between a drinks manufacturer that everybody thought had no business being in Formula One yep, and the great almighty Ferrari. That was only what? two years out, three years out from a role of world championship wins. Yeah. I mean, they hadn't been that far off the Schumacher days. Mm-hmm. So you, you could really see, and I freely admit, I'm one of the people in the camp that's like, Fernando's consistently made stupid decisions. That one, in the face of that, I don't blame him one bit for taking what seemed like the best choice in hindsight you could say he walked away from four more world championships and he could have been if if he had taken that and they had won four he would be a six-time world champion yeah and then probably not entertained at mclaren and dealing with the honda thing and what would have the what would the fight have looked like with Fernando versus Lewis well, in he, the change? He years? might not necessarily have been a four time world champion though, 
Because what we don't know is whose seat he was offered. Was he offered Cothard's seat or was he author, uh, offered Weber's seat? Mm-hmm. Because assuming Sebastian Vettel had continued on his stratospheric climb that he had been working at the time, and he was promoted up alongside Fernando in the Red Bulls. What would have happened? That could have been a very, very interesting pairing of those two as teammates. And probably every bit as fiery as the Weber-Vettel relationship. And probably every bit as fiery as the Hamilton-Alonzo relationship mm-hmm. when they were both at McLaren. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's got a whole lot of, I mean, this borders on the classic arguments of Marvel versus DC, (laughs) but, or the, well, if somebody had traded somebody in some baseball draft or football draft, you know, who would have won that, you know, that thing, that series or that other piece, you know, if so-and-so hadn't gone to such and such. What would have happened? And we, it's all theoretical. But I have to go back to, I will say I think Fernando was not bright in leaving Ferrari to go to McLaren. I think that that was not a safe choice. But when looking at a drinks manufacturer and Ferrari, no one in their right mind is going to pick the drinks manufacturer in 2007. Yeah, when they were just starting out, they had just bought the Jaguar team, and, and that was fairly well the jaguar team was struggling mightily back then so it wasn't like you just bought a turnkey operation that was going to win races exactly but fernando keeps pushing this idea that red bull has approached him this year and that red bull approached him for taking daniel ricardo's seat to which red bull keeps denying which makes me wonder why say it and then why deny it like if it didn't happen why would fernando make it up in his mind if it did happen okay why is red bull denying it so vehemently from a fernando perspective again remember we're talking about fernando alonso who in his desire to make himself seem larger than life at times says some really stupid stuff okay i mean truly now the response that came from at this point now fernando is demanding that red bull apologize for denying this story to which christian horner responded on sky um earlier this week um i'm not quite so sure Maybe France Toast has made him an offer, who is, of course, the Toro Rosso principal. Maybe France, France Toast has made him an offer. There was no offer from Red Bull Racing this year. Fernando Alonso is a great driver. He is one of the best Grand Prix drivers out there, but he just doesn't fit the profile of our team. The investment we have in youth in a junior team with Toro Rosso, I think it will be sad for him to leave Formula One. But there was certainly never any offer on the table from Red Bull Racing. Now, this is where I think we could be getting this from. So, Fernando's being managed by Flavio Briatore. Right. The flamboyant Flavio Briatore. Who has a really loose interpretation of offers and conversations. Right. 
because Christian went on to say, I had a couple of conversations with Flavio, who was obviously looking around. There was an inquiry that came from Formula One management immediately following Daniel's announcement. But the situation was always very clear that Fernando doesn't fit in our thoughts and our future, so there was never any offer. Why Fernando's chosen to say that, I'm not sure. I'm not sure whom he had the offer from, which makes me wonder if what he's saying is true is that the chain of events was a little bit different than what everybody thinks, and maybe Fernando was interpreting this chain of events. Possibly Flavio said that, I think there's interest, I'm going to go talk. Or Formula One management said, we think there's interest, we're going to go talk. And maybe that's what it is. Well, okay. Flavio flamboyantly has a loose interpretation of reality. Mm -hmm. I would not be surprised if the conversation between Christian and Flavio, Flavio and FOM, and that triumvirate conversations didn't go something along the lines of well you know fernando is available since ricardo has left your team fernando is available if you are interested in mm -hmm. his services and was then met with christian going you know fernando is an outstanding driver and formula one will greatly miss him thanks, and probably no and probably never said the words thanks but no thanks mm. or it's a real sh probably said something to the fact it's a real shame that fernando's leaving formula one wouldn't it be great if he could find a seat within formula one yeah and just enough of saying it would be awesome for him to be able to come over that flavio interpreted it as we're going to talk and that there could be an offer coming he then reports it back to fernando that says something like red bull's interested in you Mm -hmm. and, and there's no actual offer made because that's the other piece of this whole thing. Christian is very specific to say there was no offer. Yes. Fernando says that there was interest in him. Well, he did say on Thursday that he turned down four or five offers, including one from, from Red Bull. What he said on Thursday... I had other offers as well. I don't think my targets or my challenges for next year were in F1 anymore. So this is why he turned all these down. He said, the offers I had, including that one from Red Bull, they were not for winning. They are all probably on performance more than one second from pole position, as we saw in the Belgian Grand Prix qualifying. All right, well, no. The parentheticals are weird on this one. Yeah, especially yeah. Thursday, they wouldn't have the qualifying. Yeah, more than one second from pole position. To be fifth or sixth or seventh will not be the same challenge or enthusiasm as I can find away from Formula One in 2019. I made my decision a couple of months ago, and I'm extremely happy with that. So now let's remember what so far we know he has made his decision. He's made his decision. He's competing in World Endurance Championship championship he's competing in wec and one of the main reasons that he has said he is leaving formula one is because he formula one has gotten too predictable right so he decided to go to the world endurance championship to go drive for toyota a team that has nobody else competing in its class that in its last race finished the race four laps ahead of everybody else at a minimum and they're trying to figure out ways to change the rules to slow down the car but formula one is too predictable well it is <laughs> it's too predictable that he won't win 
Yeah. Fernando is perfectly happy with predictable seasons if he's winning. Well, see, that's the thing. Because so last weekend, as we had talked about at the, at the opening of the show, um, was the six hours at Silverstone, where uh, actually Fernando's car didn't qualify in pole. It qualified in second. Well, the two cars um, won the race, one two finish for the Toyota cars. However, they were then disqualified. <laughs> what did they do wrong to disqualify? Get disqualified? Well, they were disqualified because um, the floor, uh, just like in the Formula One cars, they've got uh, a floor that they measure how much um, it wears away over the course of the race. And if it wears away too much, it's a sign that the floor is too low and you can be disqualified. Well, the floor wore away too much. Mm. Toyota's claim, although they did not appeal the decision, when it was found, they, they took the car to scrutineering and found that the floors had worn away too much. Toyota's claim was that it was actually, it wasn't because their floors were too low, but because a new curbing was installed at Silverstone and that was grinding down the floors more. Ah. So they're blaming the curb. However, again, they didn't appeal the decision. Well, ultimately, if you can't prove that it's the curb. Yeah. So you're going to try to fight it and lose anyway. You look like a sore loser. So. But they say that, well, you know, the design and construction of the park concern has not changed since its introduction at the beginning of the 2017 season. And it has successfully passed similar tests most recently at Spa this season. So they haven't had this issue except at this one track. Mm-hmm. But... See, WC isn't predictable. Now, what could have been very interesting, but unfortunately they walked away, was what happened with Porsche and their entry. And one of the things that I can't figure out with Porsche and, and their WEC entry, so they announced last year that last year was their, their last season in World Endurance Championship and they were going off to do other stuff. But oddly enough, they still built it. And, and, what I understand is they built a new Porsche 919 LMP car, even though they didn't enter it, they didn't race it. And instead, this car has been touring around doing all kinds of press and promotional appearances from driving around the Nürburgring and setting a track record there and Silverstone. And they drove it through downtown Manhattan at one point. And I mean, all of these places, this car is popping up, including over at Spa where they ran it and it's set. Uh, back in April, uh, a track record of 1 minute uh, 41.770 seconds. So that lap beat Lewis Hamilton's pole time from 2017 by almost a second. However, Sebastian Vettel's qualifying that he took pole, or, or yeah, that he took pole on, no, he didn't take pole. He didn't. It's his Q2. Oh, his first, his Q2 time is what it was. Right. That's, I'm, this article is a little weird. So Sebastian Vettel's Q2 time where he set a track record was faster than Porsche's 919 hybrid time. Wow. Wow, that's pretty fast. Yeah. Now, the pole lap in Belgium, because Spa's weather is freaky, um, the pole lap was Lewis Hamilton, and it was because it poured down rain in Q3 and then started drying. Yeah. Okay, so 
Vettel's qualifying lap was 1 minute 41.501 seconds with Kimi Raikkonen and Lewis Hamilton lapping in the same tenth of a second. Now, the official track track record, which is set around race times, is still slower. Mm -hmm. That's 146.557. Yeah, and that's not unusual because during races they carry more fuel. Mm -hmm. And they don't use party mode. No, they don't. They don't use party mode anymore. No more parties. Only in qualifying. Yeah. So our last story. Yes. So, World Rally Championship series number five. Now we've spoken about. Are we gonna go that to Moto? Be, that might be a record there that we've hit five series in one show. Can we squeeze in MotoGP somehow? I could have if I cared. Okay. <laughs> so last weekend was the World Rally Championships. Rally Deutschland in okay. Germany. And, you know, they don't nest, they don't typically run on formal tracks. They're running rally stages through farms and through fields and, and things and forests and things of that nature. Well, I guess the owner of one of the farms that they were running around, they don't really go through the, the, the farmer's property, but the, the roads that they were running around, one of the farmers who owned the land adjacent to the rally stage decided that he had enough. And as a result, he took his car, drove it out to the road, and parked it there and walked away. Oh. So then when the rally cars came around, they couldn't get by and they had to stop. And he stopped the whole the whole uh, rally stage for a few for a bit until they came and towed his car away. I've had enough now. You can stop. Yeah. Now, the big names in World Rally Championship, the leaders, they happen to have gotten through before the farmer decided he had enough. Oh, maybe he was a supporter of the big names and he thought he was helping increase leads. I don't know. But, yeah. A farmer stopped the race. Well, I guess that's more easily handleable than, you know, a cow. Reportedly... As he walked away from his car and buried his keys in the field next to it, he could be heard muttering, you kids get off my lawn. And on that note, we'll call it a show. (laughs) We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. (laughs) Okay. Are they all gone? Uh, Is is everybody gone? (laughs) Huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. A little break? Okay. Whew.